0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective, Gary Jenkins. Welcome, Wiretappers, to the first of a two-part series on a Royal Canadian Mounted Police operation that went horribly wrong. In a nutshell, a narcotics unit of the square-jawed Dudley Do-Right Mounties used a professional informant to intimidate a young drug addict into setting up a heroin deal over in Thailand. At the takedown in Thailand, a Mountie was killed and some low-level Thai drug dealers were arrested, along with my upcoming guest, Alan Olivier. I got onto this from an Amazon movie titled Most Wanted. This is a very recent film starring Josh Harnett and the comedian Jim Gaffigan. In an unusual cast selection, the filmmaker chose the funny man, Gaffigan, to play a low-down, double-dealing informant who assisted in destroying a young man's life. Gaffigan was not funny in the entire thing, and I thought he did a heck of a job. I'll tell you what, I was so taken with this story that I reached out to the victim of this setup by the Mounties, and that man named Alan Olivier, at his website, which is www.alainolivier.ca. That's A L A I N. O-L-I-V-I-E-R dot c a. I use C-A in Canada instead of dot com. So, don't forget to hit me up on the donate button once in a while or buy me a shot and a beer on Venmo at Gangland Wire. I want to warn you that I had a little trouble with this recorder, the one I'm using right now, which has a pretty decent sound. And so, during the interview, when you hear my voice, it will sound a little funny. It'll be from recording on the Skype call, the Skype microphone. But I don't really talk that much in it anyhow, primarily, and you're used to that, my guest is on Skype or on Zoom, and, and the microphones aren't usually that good. Of course, you know, I don't have the huge big budget that I can mail them a microphone or pay for them to go into a studio wherever they are, and and we can record the interview that way. So uh, just bear with me, because I tell you what, this story's worth, I don't think you'll notice. This story is so compelling that I don't think you'll notice the quality of the sound. It's about like my usual ones overall, it's okay. So sit back and prepare to be shocked and amazed and thrilled and disgusted by this story. I'm a little bit embarrassed by the actions of these law enforcement officers. I have a man on the line who has one heck of a story, and it's a lot colder where he is. His name is Elaine Olivier, and he spent, I believe, eight years in a prison in Thailand. Now, any of you guys when you were young If you're kind of action-oriented guys, everybody's thought about making that one big score. Go to Mexico or go to some other country and buy a bunch of dope real cheap and bring it back and sell it, make a big amount of money. But you always hear those stories about spending time in a Turkish prison or an Asian prison or a Mexican prison. Well, Elaine has done it, and he's here to tell us all about it. It's really an interesting story. Elaine, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really happy to have you here. I watched that movie, Most Wanted is the name of it down here in the United States, on Amazon Prime. And uh, Josh Hartnett is the lead in it. And I didn't recognize the name of the man that played you, but it grabbed me. I'll tell you what, Elaine, that movie grabbed me.
1: Jim as well. And
0: Jim Gaffigan. Playing yes. a crazy, crazy,
1: crazy role I believe me. We'll have a chance to discuss that. Yeah,
0: really. We're going to talk about that, folks. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, played uh, heavy, uh, the bad guy. And he did, it good. <laughs> he did <it>. <laughs> <laughs> a psychopath. He did a little bit too good, like, damn. <laughs> just <you> believe me? <laughs> <laughs> So several years ago, Elaine, a court in Thailand sentenced you to a hundred years in prison, and that was to avoid a death sentence for drug smuggling. And yet here you are, up in uh, sunny Montreal and out of freezing cold Thailand. Oh, I've got that backwards, don't I? Uh, Sunny Thailand and freezing Montreal. But anyhow, how did this get started? I guess let's just kind of start at the (laughs) beginning.
1: You want to start from the start? uh...
0: Yeah, kind of like you know when you were young. Yeah. uh, that about
1: day, after I got out of school as a forest ranger, I, I went on the road after that with different bands to play music. We were partying hard for many years, and I decided to move to Vancouver just to get away from all that. And when I got in Vancouver, I started doing tree plantings. And at the end of my planting season, I ended up traveling over to Southeastern Asia. I went to Malaysia, Thailand. Burma, I went to Nepal, and I came back here after like three months overseas where I got hooked on heroin. And upon my return to Gibson's Landing, where I was living near Vancouver, I was introduced to a guy going by the name of uh, Glenn Howard Barry. Uh, Unknown to me, that guy was RCMP paid civil agent. He he worked as an informant, but he was getting paid by the informant the information he was providing to the RCMP. And uh, at the time I came back, I was worked on errand I, and I brought back a few grams from Kathmandu Nepal of brown sugar just to cut down my habit, not to be sick too quickly and go through very, very severe withdrawal. And uh, Glenn Barry found out that I had brought back some and uh, he invited me on his boat and we partied with him. He did some cocaine with us and smoked weed and Took us out fishing, Simon, and everything. And at some point, he asked me if I'd like to get into the charter business with him. And I agreed. That would be a nice thing. And foremost, as I was going back to work, I got an accident. I almost lost my left eye. And that's the reason why I had to stay in Gibson. And he offered me to work with him since I didn't have any money. And the farm where I was living on was sold while I was in the hospital for the surgery. He offered me to stay on his boat. And uh, after several trips out fishing salmon with him, he asked me on many occasions if he would like to make money quick. And I told him I wasn't interested. I was going back to work in the forest and everything. And after a couple of weeks, he decided to go for a month. And he let me to take charge of a Gibson charter and take people out fishing for a whole month. And when he came back, he told me that he had gone to Colombia to uh, purchase a a full container of cocaine with his friends and that now the container was being taken back to vancouver and uh, shortly after that kept asking me if i'd like to make money and he said that he had talked to his friends and everything and uh, after a trip that we went uh, out fishing july that was july 18 1987 during the sea cavalcade in vancouver uh, in, in Gibson's Landing, I ended up meeting two of his friends. One was uh, Barry Bennett, and the other one was Dennis Massey. Two guys dressed like those guys in the movie Miami Vice, uh, in the series Miami Vice in the 80s with Hawaiian shirt and slacks and loafers and gold chains and everything. And uh, this, they made me a uh, Glenberry. I had gone to tell them that I had brought back uh, like some hundred grams of heroin from Thailand, which was totally false since I only brought back less than seven grams for myself. And uh, these guys, after a moment talking with them, they asked me if I would like to go to Thailand to introduce them to a source of heroin over there. And I told them, like I did to Glenn Barry, I said, I'm not interested in that. I have a job and I'm going to go back to my job. And uh, to make a long story short, a week later, Barry Bennett came back to the marina to borrow the boat I stayed on for the whole weekend. And when he came back on that Friday morning, July 24, 1987, he was with another stranger, a tall guy that I had never met. and They decided to go to rent the boat for uh, I Actually, they didn't rent it. Glenn Barry lent the boat to these guys, and uh, they were going to Vancouver Island, apparently over Nanaimo or something like that. Actually, that was Chimanesh. And uh, three days later, Glenn, Barry Bennett came back. And as I waited for the boat at the dock, I couldn't see the other tall guy on the boat. And the previous day, Glen Barry told me that Bennett had gone to kill the guy. And he started laughing. I thought he was only making a joke. But when I saw Bennett coming alone on a boat, as soon as I tied the boat at the dock, Barry Bennett walked out. And... Just start walking on the dock, just pushing me on the way and staring at me with his cold, bloody eyes and just freeze my blood. And as I looked inside the boat, as my eyes were going around, all of a sudden I started to see splatters of blood. And then I saw one empty casing of Nightmare on the floor. Then I turned around and I saw a second empty casing. And as I went to pick up these bullets I started freaking out. I was wondering what the fuck did go happen over there. And I realized that they had killed a guy. That's the first impression that I had. So I took the two bullets to Glen Barry. And I told him, I said, hey, what the hell is this? We have customers coming over here. And he started pushing me. He says, you don't say a fucking word about this. Otherwise, the same thing will happen to you. And he says, for now on, that you want it or not, you're part of it. I had manipulated the empty casing and now it's like I had manipulated element of a sign a murder scene.
0: Elaine, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Yeah. First of all, how old were you when you first started down this path with Glenn Berry? When I
1: met Glenn Berry, I was twenty seven years old. And how old was he? He was like forty years old. He was born May first, nineteen
0: forty-nine, if I remember. So there was like a huge age difference in experience difference it sounds like you've been working in the forest you had been in bands you didn't have much real life business uh, criminal kind of experience it doesn't sound like had you even been arrested or been in jail for anything other than maybe something minor before
1: never at all but what made this even more particular is that when Barry gave them my birth date The RCMP made a criminal background check on everything and a criminal record came out that didn't belong to me, but to another guy whose last name was Olivier. And that guy had a serial of criminal offenses for drugs and violence and I think weapons and stuff like that. And all of a sudden the RCMP, they thought I was him and that's why they came to Gibson and they Did that murder scenario to make me believe that they were members of the crime family in Vancouver, that they were members of the mob. They wanted to erase any doubt on my mind that they could be cops.
0: Wow, that was pretty slick on there. I've done a lot of undercover things and used people in many ways, but I've never taken a kid like that or a young person and set them up quite like that. That was, wow.
1: I was the first victim of Mr. Big in Canada. The Mr. Big Scheme that the RCMP ran in Canada and are still running. But yeah. at the time, it didn't have that name. The same guy who put that on the RCMP agenda, the Mr. Big t- uh, Scheme, his name was Sergeant Peter Marsh from E-Division in Richmond, B.C. He's dead now. He died a few years ago. But he was the, the guy who initiated and created this old program back in 1987 at E-Division, the same division as Barry Bennett and Dennis Massey and the others were working. By coincidence, the guy who was heading their crime family, his name was the fat man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. and believe
1: me, Gary, I've seen big guys in my life, but this guy was big.
0: It was the fat man. I have another question about this. Yeah, this is ahead. most interesting. So what you're telling me is the RCMP... The famous, bonded, you know, Dudley-Do-Right Mounties of Canada, their investigative division, which a lot of people don't really realize. Down in the United States, we had this idea about this tall, broad-shouldered, blue-eyed, square-jawed guy with a hat (laughs) riding a horse. That's (laughs) the only Mounties we've seen wearing a red coat. So they have a whole undercover narcotics unit and investigative units for other crimes are like the state police itself. Yeah, like if the FBI had a uniform division, I believe, as well as detectives. So they set up a scenario, and they end up calling it Mr. Big, and maybe they even invented it from you, or they would draw a guy in like you, who was maybe didn't exactly know that wasn't that hip and didn't know what was going on, in order to do a sting on him or get him to the mark, if you will, uh, do what they wanted. They would draw you in and then start to put you in a compromising position, at least what you thought was a compromising position, sure. and Oops. then come down on you and then yeah. make you bend to do what they wanted you to do. In the United States, that would become entrapment in the end. In
1: Canada true. also, we have a lot of entrapment since the 80s with Antonio Lamer, the Justice Lamer who had the, what made read really jurisprudence in Canada, the Mac case. And they have like 10 different elements that contributes to be entrapment in law. And for later on, we'll talk about it, uh, about the trial. But the RCMP never thought that I would be able to prove that, that they acted such scenario on the boat. And it's only because another guy in Vancouver who was arrested in that same operation after I was arrested in Thailand, one of the witnesses came forward. Because I sent them a letter about the fact that that they had done that on the boat. And that that's the only reason they managed to prove it in court. Because when they questioned Glenn Barry about it, about the day that Barry Bennett taking someone out on the boat, the, the blood on the boat and the empty uh, 9mm casing, Glenn Barry said that we did that. They couldn't deny it, it happened. Yeah. And they, they said in court that was for my own benefit. If they did that, so imagine. Mm, yes, you do have entrapment. It's only that the court needs to enforce it when time comes to do so. Yeah.
0: So now they've got you scared. They think you are a witness to a mob murder, and they brought in Mr. Big, kind of the the closer in, in the used car business. He would be, or the car business, he'd be called the closer, the guy that comes in and puts the hammer down. Just. Yeah, you have to do what we ask you to do. So tell me what happened then. How did that work play
1: out? After that murder scenario, I moved away from uh, Gibson's Landing, but Barry is the one who drove me an hour and a half away because I wanted to get away from him. And uh, they started just to Glenberry foremost, started to visit me up the coast where I was working uh, on a seafish farm. In And uh, salmon farm. I, I mean, and uh, he started to come to tell me, "You won't get away like this. You won't make me lose face before my friends." I told them that you were able to bring back Iran to Canada and from Thailand. This is when I told him, "I was, by the way,". I says, "I never brought any Iran back from Thailand. The little bit I brought back was from <laughs> Kathmandu." <laughs> but that guy managed. Imagine that guy is a master fisherman. First of all. He was an iron worker before, but got a big accident. He's from a small village on the East Coast here. He spent his whole life fishing. He's a master fisherman, but he got these guys to believe that I was running out the iron trade on the coast. And when they checked my birthday, they did the background check. They were sure that I was their man. And they started for 18 months to chase me all across Canada to make sure that i would go along with their scheme they offered me 10 percent of all the drugs they would buy over there and i was a junkie and they were offering me up to a kilo of heroin to help them out and wow. they were delivering it right in vancouver at the door i didn't have to do anything they had plane pilot cleaning crew at the airport and so on they like a real criminal organization, I mean <laughs> and they played a the role well, believe me, because these guys in Vancouver, when I look back at all the history of the r c m p in Vancouver since there is a complaint commission against the r c m p here in Canada, the commission opened at the time I was arrested in Thailand by in fact the r c p in Vancouver at some point they had a few thousand complaints every year against them from. Canadian citizen who had been victimized by them in one form or another and myself even myself i did come to work not work with the complaint but i did file complaint we'll talk about it later on but for 18 months for 18 months they threatened me they made offers to me of 10% reward if i was going along with them they were to pay my plane ticket and they did pay my expenses they did pay for expenses including all the money I needed to buy my drugs once in Thailand. And when they saw that I was to, they even went as far, Glenberry went as far as to say, if you don't come along with us, if you don't do as we are telling you, we're going to go after your own family.
0: Interesting. Boy, they put the pressure on you. So they get you, they almost like kidnap you and get you on the plane. It it looked like the airport. Was that have some reality to it? Few hours
1: before leaving to Thailand, after they purchased my plane ticket and everything, when I arrived in Vancouver, they picked me up at the airport and brought me down to some shaggy uh, motel over Burnaby or New Westminster, I mean, and uh, near the airport a few minutes away. And uh, as I entered my room, who was there? Glen Barry. Mm-hmm. And they let me alone with him. He had few things to tell me before my departure. Hmm. And he made it clear to me that if I wasn't doing as they were telling me, and if ever things didn't work out in Thailand, they were to fucking kill me. And if it wasn't them, he was to kill
0: me. Hmm. Boy, so you get over to Thailand. You don't really know anybody particularly in Thailand. <laughs> It doesn't sound to me like maybe you've met some people when you were just backpacking around over there and doing a little heroin.
1: You know, I found that uh, tuk-tuk driver in Thailand. Yeah. Someone over here in Canada, a Quebecer who who used to go to Thailand, uh, the guy was a junkie and he knew the guy we're talking about in my book. He knew that guy. He says, if you go see uh, porn in Thailand and you go to the porn hotel, he's a tuk-tuk driver, a rickshaw driver. And you will be able to find whatever you need. So I went to Thailand with that picture of that guy in Quebec who was with his wife. And I only showed that picture to that tuk-tuk driver (laughs) and told him, this guy is my friend. I didn't even know that guy. It was a friend of a friend of a friend. This is how I did get to that source over there, which was not even a source. That guy usually only sold a few grams to tourists here and there. To be able to feed his three kids and his wife, yeah, yeah. he wasn't playing in the big league with the th- Chinese triads or anything like that. His sister was supposed to do the deal with the RCMP, but the so-called mob gang from Vancouver. She was a hairdresser living on the outskirts of Chiang Mai in a slum. I mean, like I said, we're not talking about triads and big, big, big Chinese mafia and big circle of. I know what it is now because I spend time with guys with me in prison who were there for tons of A.R.I.N. I mean, I spent years with them. I know what it is now. (laughs) Interesting.
0: So so to kind of encapsulate, you get over there, you find P.O.R.N., P-O-R-N, who is a rickshaw driver, a tuk-tuk driver, and he hangs out in front of this hotel called P.O.R.N., and you find him. He can't really do it, but then he, through his wife, finds some other hairdresser could maybe come up with a little bit of heroin and at this time that was his sister actually he said okay his sister yeah and at that time the rcmp has brought a whole small squad of men over to yeah. take care of this and five of them five of them yeah. and so did you well, did Six. you see them did you know they were there how many were there when I arrived in Chiang Mai a few days later,
1: I met them in a room at the Chiang Mai Orchid Hotel. And as far as I knew, there was only uh, Barry Bennett, Jack Dock, the fat man, actually, Jack the fat man Dock, Derek Flanagan, the one who got killed, and Jim Girdlestone, who was supposed to be their so-called plane pilot. There were the four of them, but had not meet Girdle Stone right away because he was in another room recording the old conversation
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the room I was in. So there was Jack the Fat Man Dope, Derek Flanagan, and Barry Bennett. And uh, I met them on the Friday. I got them to meet Porn's sister the day after, and she came to me, and we, I brought them in a the slum. At some point, someone knocked on her door, a small kid, and whispered something to her, and she came back, and she took me to another room, and she said, I'm not dealing with your friend that thinks they are, I'm sure they are cops. And I said, they cannot be cops, these guys. For heaven's sakes, they killed someone on my boat, the boat I live off. (laughs) And more than that, Barry Bennett, during those 18 months, they were chasing me. According to Glenn, Barry had killed also Dennis Massey that I had met with him the week before the murder scenario because Massey was out of line. So the killing was... Just continuing on wow. as the operation went on. And in the- Thailand, they were the one who paid for my plane ticket, my expenses, my food, the money for my drugs. And uh, after she told me that, I kept thinking, it's not possible. Bennett killed that guy. He killed that guy. And, uh, so finally, the deal was canceled. I had to walk Bennett and Flanagan out of the slum. They were shitting their pants. We went back to the hotel, and there, uh, jacked up, was fucking fuming that things didn't work out. And the day after, they got to meet poor than two other guy that they got them to meet, and it didn't work out. And at some point in the room, Bennett says, "If this t- thing doesn't fucking work out, there's gonna be some fucking unhappy people back home." Really? Once in Shanghai, they were in total control of me. And after the deal didn't work out, when Bennett says. There's going to be some fucking unhappy people back home if this thing doesn't fucking work out. For me, it was like the kiss of death. And the fat man who added up a few of his words, he says, we've been waiting for this a long time, Alan, with a very sinister voice. So I had to do something. So I, at some point, I talked to porn again right after that. And shortly after, in the afternoon, he came back to see me. He says, I found probably someone else, two other girls, would be able to get these guys whatever they want and he brought me to this girl to see just to test the and she had and uh, she had good stuff <laughs> i remember pretty well and uh porn after that i went back to the hotel and it wasn't yet sure that the deal would occur and i waited at the, the hotel with uh, bennett dopp and uh, flanagan and uh, at some point, uh, Porn uh, gave a phone call at uh, room 714, 716 at the chamber Hotel. And he says, yes, things will work out. I'm downstairs. I'm waiting for you. So at that point, it was uh, Sunday night when that phone call came in uh, in the room, and informing us that the girls were downstairs and waiting to do the deal. The only thing is, is that Dopp wanted to do the deal in a public place. and all the Thais so far refused to do that. They all wanted to do that in place, away from people. And uh, she came up, Nipa, the little Thai, one of the Thai women who got arrested, she came up with the idea to do the deal in parking of a theater a couple blocks away from the hotel. And after a moment of thinking, uh, W said, yes, he agreed to that. And he decided to send Flanagan with me. Uh, to drive around the block with her in her small pickup truck. And as we got to the pickup truck, Flanagan was nervous, and he asked if the drug was inside the truck. She said no, but she pointed out towards a scooter a little further down with someone who was holding on to it. And we drove to the parking lot a couple blocks away, and he started to looking at the place, and he asked me to go back to the hotel to tell the fat man and Bennett to bring the money, because things were fine for him to do that there. I walked back to the hotel with Pim Pam, and I got there. Bennett was waiting outside with uh, Stone, the guy who was supposed to be their plane pilot, which I met by accident the day before, but it was just another small detail. And I thought my job was done, because all I had to do, according to Glenn Barry, and after that, Bennett and the others, Dup including Dup, was to introduce them to the source, and my job was done after that. And I was to walk away. And leave them with Pim Pam to go back to the pickup truck to conclude their own transaction, and Bennett told me he says, "No, no, no, you're coming with us, you are insurance that this thing this whole deal will work out fine." so they took me up, and they brought me in a small taxi that drove by another pickup truck. We jumped in the box and drove a couple blocks away and we got over there, and Girlstone was holding on to the bag of era and not the bag of rent but the bag of money. They had brought to Thailand $70,000. They wanted to buy 10 kilos at first, and due to the price given to them, they were to buy only five kilos. And uh, they had an agreement that Pem Pam wouldn't do five kilos at once with them, but only two kilos first, and if things work fine, they will do three others afterward. So Mm -hmm. the deal was done, and they had like 28 grand in their small, pouch and as soon as we got to the parking lot pimpam pam asked bennett and uh, flanagan to jump inside the box in the cargo area of her small pickup truck her small sister was there too her name was pimpam, pam and her brother was on a scooter nearby and waiting with the drug and she signaled him to drive away and she started driving away with the truck but bennett refused to climb in and girdle stone as well and only flanagan finally jumped in at the back with me and we drove a few hundred feet and uh, she started to go down the back lane and park it around lamppost where there was nobody around and we could do the deal without any problem and it was still semi-public and there was some light but bennett didn't want to come down the lane right away and he stayed behind with girl stone. so after a moment i walked with girl stone to them and asked them to bring the money Pimpam was following us a few steps behind and she told them to move their ass and to come and bring the money at that point bennett got the money from girl stone and he asked girl stone to stay behind by your phone booth and we were let's see like a couple blocks away from the where the transaction and the pickup truck was at that point where she had parked the truck under the lamppost, and Stone stayed there behind and waited for more order from Bennett. And at that point, we walked to the truck, and uh, Flanagan was looking all around to see if he couldn't see uh, Nipa's brother with the drug. And he was hidden with his back on the fence with a whole bunch of vegetation covering him. It was dark by then, it was like, I guess, when we got to the parking lot, it was already dark outside. And uh, Bennett started to talk with Nipah at the front. He had half his body inside, and he was asking her where was the drug. And she wanted to see the money, and she says, you won't see the money (coughs) until I see the drug. So at some point, she called for her brother to come out from his hiding spot. And uh, he walked out, he jumped over a small ditch and he climbed at the back in the cargo area and Flanagan was keeping his eyes on him. Myself, I was only by the bumper, uh, the front bumper at the front of the pickup truck and I was looking at everything unrolling and unfolding before my eyes. And at some point, Bennett screamed, asked Flanagan on a couple of occasions, have you seen the drug yet? Have you seen the drug yet? And Flanagan was saying, no, no, no. And at some point, as soon as Prapa, uh, Pam Brother, got at the back of the truck, Flanagan saw the pack and he started going a few steps forward and he jumped on the guy like a tackle during a football game. And in the meantime, Bennett was showing the money to Nipah, but she realized all the money had been wrapped up with duct tape. She couldn't even see it. And as this happened... And the fight broke at the back. She climbed down the truck. She jumped on Flanagan's back. He was fighting with uh, her brother. Meanwhile, Bennett was looking at this and decided to climb at the back as well to help Flanagan to fight Nipah and her brother. Myself, I was walking backward a few steps. And at some point, as the fight broke out, I heard police, police. That's the thing I forgot to tell you. This is when I realized that they were RCMP members. The best is come in there. They were fighting at the back of the truck. And as I walked back, Pim Pam, the little sister of Nipah, was nearby. She jumped inside the truck and start, She tried to put the truck into gear, and she choked. And the fight was still going on at the back, and I was walking backward. And at some point, she managed to just take off with the truck at the corner. she spin turning right and started running. I started running, and as I turned the corner, block away from where they had left the scene, Girdlestone was coming running at me, and he just jumped on me and just threw me down a ditch, and he ended up on top of me. And as this occurred, my eyes stayed on the back alley, and all we could see at that point was the taillight of the pickup truck. And Girdlestone was just trying to keep me there. It was much bigger than me. I was only 120. It was 260. I mean, wasn't too hard, but the adrenaline and everything. And at some point, we heard a bang. A gun went off. And right away, Girl Stone asked me, who's got a gun? Where is your gun? And I said, no one's got any gun. So he put me back on my feet, and he started screaming for his backup. The Thai police were supposed to be on the scene with them, but there was nobody. And a certain amount of seconds went by before two Thai cops showed at the scene. And meanwhile, the pickup truck had left. Because when the gun went off, we saw the taillight at the back, the brake light, shining up in the dark. In the time of a heartbeat, the truck started driving away once again. And the uh, girl stone tried to give me to a Thai police arriving at the scene. Because I was scared to be shot at that point. As he tried to hand me to the Thai police, I broke free and I started to run away. And Girl stone started to scream at the Thai police to shoot me. And I saw the Thai police pulling out. His browning 357 silver glowed in the dark. <laughs> and uh, as soon as I saw that and I start to see the Thai police aiming at me, I dove to the ground and Girl stone came back to pick me up and they put the handcuffs on me. And brought me back where the truck was parked under the lamppost at the time the deal was supposed to go down. And uh, Gerdeson really wanted to start running to go see what went on over there because he saw also that Flanagan and Bennett had been at the back of the truck. And after the gunshot, he surely had reason to worry about what went on. And as soon as he put me to the ground with my handcuffs in the back and he tied them up. He asked the Thai police to keep an eye on me. He started running. This is when I saw Barry Bennett walking out of the dark. And he was holding out to Nipah with his right arm. And what could have been a gun in his left hand? He was a left-hander, by the way, Bennett. And I, I say, holy shit, what the fuck went on? I didn't know yet. I couldn't see a Flanagan at all. And as they brought Nipah to me next to me, couple of seconds later, a couple of cops came to pick me up, and they started dragging me to a police car. And they threw me at the back with my hands tied in and at the back. <laughs> and I ended up with my lungs, my ribs, and then right on the lump between the two seats, and I ended up breaking my ribs, and I started spitting blood right away. And Nipa came a few minutes later. But just before she came in, I saw that guy from the RCMP at the Canadian Embassy. I had seen him the day before, but I thought it was tourists that was talking with Jagged up at the PC around the pool at the hotel. But it was the yellow officer of the RCMP, and he started screaming to the Thai police while I was at the back of the car. He started screaming, one of us got shot, one of us went down, one of us got shot, one of us went down. And then he saw me at the back, and he realized that now I, I knew what went on. And uh, as soon as he said that, I said, fuck, it, it has to be Flanagan. And after that, they brought Nipah, and she told me that according to her, gun went off as Bennett tried to break the back window of the pickup truck. The butt of his gun and the bullet would have gone off at that point, according to the ties. Mm. This is what the Thais told me, and I don't think they had any reason to make yeah. that
0: up. So really, it was what we call an accidental discharge. But the Mounties never did own up to the fact he was killed by a gunshot. Is that correct?
1: It is correct. They never acknowledged that. In fact, they said that in all the newspaper and all through the media in Thailand for the next two days, it was reported in the newspaper. It was reported on television, on radio. That Thailand, that Derek Flanagan had been shot in the head. And that doctors at the hospital in Chiang Mai had pulled bullets from the back of his head.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And after a couple of days, I saw the article in English in the newspaper, the Bangkok Post, and the nation. People can see it on my website. All these articles are there. Actually, I think part of this now has been removed. Yeah, part of the hacking a few days ago for the second time. And all the newspaper said everywhere that he had been shot, and more than that, the Thai police eyes asked my uh, co-accused who had shot the Falang. Falang, its the word, uh, the Thai word for foreigner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In that case, it was Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Why would the cop ask the Thais who had shot the who had shot Fla- the foreigner? Mm-hmm. And even the chief of police in Shanghai? The day after the arrest, I was sick. I was puking and shitting everywhere. He's the one who gave me IRN to be able to follow the old parade that day. He's the one, once I got in his office, he said, uh, "Monsieur Olivier, you're very lucky that it's not the Thai police who got shot. Mm-hmm. You're very, very lucky. And he didn't tell me that once, he told me that twice. The first day after the arrest and the second day, he reminded me that I was lucky. Mm-hmm. And for the, those two days over there, the Thai police did the reenactment of the event, the old transaction, except that they changed the old scenario. Mm-hmm. And at some point, even me, I wanted to object to that. I couldn't. There's some reporters. It was everything that the Thai police were doing was contrary to what had been reported in the, by the media so far. And on the third day, that was General Bumrumukri. Who was in charge of uh, the Bangkok Metropolitan Unit. It's similar to the DEA in the United States. He went up to the media and he said that all the statements and reports about Derek Flanagan being shot and that the doctors had said that they had pulled a bullet from the back of his head were wrong, they were false, and that media uh, members often make error in stories like that. That was the end of the story as far as The media were concerned with Flanagan's death uh, in Thailand. And uh, meanwhile, when I was arrested, when we were transferred to Bangkok, they sat us on an army plane and right next to the coffin of Derek Flanagan at the back of the plane, and I think that was done on purpose. And I told them, I said, you must be ashamed of yourself. You cannot even look at your friend who died, and that's your fault if he's dead. The RCMP didn't have the authorization to be over there, like it should have got from the Solicitor General of Canada, which is actually the safety, public safety minister, who's in charge of the RCMP, because only the minister can decide if there will be responsibility agreement between the two countries, and <laughs> human rights, Canadian human rights, the charter has to be followed, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they have to look at, how Thailand runs his business over there in terms of human rights before bringing someone over there. In the same way as in Canada, in the Byrne case, when they wanted to extradite him to United States, to where he faced the death sentence for murder. The minister went to bat. He said, as long as we don't get an express letter from the American government that that guy won't be executed, the charter keep us from, sending, from extraditing him to you. Send me to Thailand? the engineer and operation that cost them over a million bucks to buy a couple of kilos of heroin their friend was killed over there <laughs> through all that and all the documents what is even most shocking afterward as i realize over the years is that all the documents from the rcmp depicted me as some kind of pablo escobar on the west coast about heroin yeah, yeah. and that the bust in thailand had pre- Stop an old pipeline. That was all false. And I had to fight against that. This is, and when they took me to prison, a couple of weeks after that, that was when I met uh, Victor Matarek, who came to visit me. Because at the Globe and Mail, after he saw the press release from the RCMP, he felt that something didn't drive up. And he decided to travel over there in Bangkok to interview That's me, to see what went on. As a result of his article, once he got back to Canada, the RCMP public Complaints commission in Ottawa, the chairman of the commission decided to file complaints against the RCMP with regard to their conduct and my treatment in this whole operation. And their inquiry went on for a few years. And the guy who was in charge of the inquiry was a pretty nice guy, he was Paul McEwen, he died a few years ago, and he was an attorney criminal lawyer working for that commission. And the guy who was directing the commission, however, happens to be a longtime friend of the RCMP superintendent in charge of the operation in Thailand. And that guy used to be executive commissioner of the RCMP, and he was the guy in charge of looking over all complaints against the RCMP. This is how it started. And when Paul McEwan finished his inquiry on March 6th, 91. He filed a report, but the report was too critical of the RCMP and they just shoved it away and put it in the drawer. And what they did, they rewrote it. And the original report had 176 pages. And when the report came back, the final report, there was only 130 something pages. 40 mm-hmm. pages went off, mm-hmm. went out just because too critical of the RCMP.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they kept hiding that. For many years, I had to fight to get this information. Matthew report took several years before I could get it through access of information.
0: Really? really. We're up here about 55 minutes here. Let's do a second episode. Can you do a second episode and talk about your time in prison? And then writing the book and working on the movie? Okay, let's do that. I'm going to finish this off now, and I'll come back to you. Okay. I really appreciate you. That's been a heck of a story, Elaine. It's like riveting. I'm sitting here. I can't even hardly think of a question. or you No, know, I don't want to break in because it is it is a heck of a story. And you're a good storyteller. Yeah, that's that's moving. One. one reporter called his article at some point here in Quebec
1: uh, from La Presse. It says, uh, when reality goes beyond fiction.
0: <laughs> really? That's, just, <laughs> that's a good one. Yes, that is a good one. And that movie was great. It was riveting. And your book's good, too. I've just got started on it. I only got five stars reviews so far for the book. Yeah, I'll give you one. I just haven't got back to it yet. So the name of the book is Good Luck, Frenchy? Yeah. One last thing. Tell us why it's Good Luck, Frenchie. This is cold, man. This is cold. After my arrest, I
1: spent like 18 months before the court. Over a period of 18 months, yeah, I've been to court like 19 times altogether, 20 times over 18 months. That's in Thailand.
0: Yeah, in Thailand. Thailand.
1: And the RCMP came to testify on, Bennett and Dup testified on November 14, 1989, and Girl Stone on November twenty-first, 1989. And the cover picture of my book, that is me here in chain with 40 pounds of chains around my ankle. And the picture was taken by Girl Stone. And he smiled at me. A smile for our album souvenir. This is what he told me. And he took the picture the week before when Dot and Bennett testified. They perjured themselves not only about Flanagan's death, but they went as far as to tell the tie court that I had a criminal record in Canada that that was behind pipeline of errand to Canada and so, and so on and so on and so on. And nothing of it was true. None of it was true. And they used that to have me sentenced to death over there and at the end of the day testimony started at nine in the morning and we got out of court i think it was like almost eight o'clock at night or seven thirty when we they brought us back in the bullpen and they took us they brought us back to the prison with 200 guys screaming to get back to prison yeah. but they're not taking off until we're done <laughs> and bennett and like i said bennett ended up perjured himself and At the end of the day, as soon as Bennett testimony was over, Dub came to see me and he slapped me in the back as we walked out. And he says, good luck, Frenchie.
0: Hmm. Boy, that was cold. I thought that was cold, dude. All right, let's come back and talk about what happened after the trial. Well, that was one heck of a story, wasn't it? I promised you guys that. So, like I said before, email your other true crime podcasters about this guy and send a link to his website. Visit his website, buy his book. think you'll enjoy it if you like that kind of book at all. Check out that movie on Amazon, Most Wanted. It's free on Amazon Prime. It's a hell of a story. I've worked with plenty of informants myself. I have twisted, bent, coerced done everything I could to get the cooperation of a drug addict that didn't really want to give me that cooperation or order to set up somebody big, somebody bigger, which is pretty typical, but I never entrapped anybody or sent anybody up quite like he got set up. I think it was egregious what they did. That's a good $25 lawyer word, and especially not where they knew that the penalty could possibly be a death sentence. So thanks a lot, folks, and don't forget to hit me up on Venmo and buy me a shot and a beer. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the, uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content. So if you want more Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo, on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each... Podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.